GYC, for a little bit of background history, is a supporting ministry that some young people about 10 years ago started up. They wanted to just have some serious Bible study and evangelism training and uh, had no interest in big show and parade and, and all kinds of lights and sound and all the other accoutrement that usually goes with typical youthy things. They just wanted to get down, study the Word of God, and challenge you to have inspiring sermons to go out and do the work of the Lord. Uh, the first year they did it, they just kind of word of mouth invited about 200 of their friends and 400 showed up, and uh, that was a good thing. So next year they planned for 400 and 800 showed up, and at this point, uh, this last Sabbath, there were about 7,000 who were in attendance at the uh, convention center in Orlando. Uh, all of them, uh, well, most of them, between the ages of 13, 18 and 35, um, and uh, that's an exciting thing to be a part of. And I, I'm not on the board of directors. I have no personal, I'm not on the committees for any of it, but I've been invited to speak a few times, and so this, that's what I was doing, um, was able to be part of it down there. The the theme this year was Before Men and Angels, which is taken from the writings of the Apostle Paul, who always kind of writes from this perspective of someone who's being watched. Uh, if you notice, you know, we're on display. We've been made a spectacle, both before men and angels, and, and how the universe is watching the church to see not just if we claim to be Jesus Christ, but will Christ actually manifest himself in his people. And uh, that was the challenge for the young people, to let Christ live in you, and so you can be a witness to the onlooking world, both to men and to angels. Uh, My particular seminar track, which was six hours, six different sessions long, was about victory over sin, the individual conflict, from the universal perspective of the great controversy down to the individual in our role in vindicating the character of God before the universe. So it was was rather some deep thoughts and some good things, but we had, I I praise the Lord that the seminar that I was able to present was was pretty much packed every time we had three to four hundred people in the room every time and uh all the seminars were like that and so it was a great time to be a part of things and so i I appreciate your opportunity your willingness to allow me to do those things um and i want to let you know that i did not go alone i i was happy that there was a young person from the fremont church who also went uh and he had some he's coming back on fire and wants to do some things with the local church and so we're praising the lord for that and also an extended member of our church family uh, miss Lindsay mosher was there with us and it was very exciting in a room full of literally you know five plus thousand young people standing up there there was a young man who gave his testimony it was a powerful testimony powerful testimony and he made an appeal for baptism i was very very happy to see that Lindsay was the very very first one out of the thousands who were there to go down and commit her life to jesus christ so we want to encourage that and grow in it and, and build on it, and I hope that uh, we're doing that all the time. But it's very inspiring as we look into what we're going to be doing here in July with our evangelism coming up this year, that we want to be evangelism, not just that thing we did, but it's that thing we're always doing and going to be doing more of until the Lord comes. Amen? That's what we want to be doing. So I want to keep that focus in mind, but I just want to give you a brief report that GYC was a blessing. Uh, I'm sure, I don't know if anyone would be able to catch it on 3ABN. It was recorded. I'm sure they'll be replaying it, and audio will be available short forthcoming. But anyway, it was a blessing, so thank you for that. But now, here today, we turn our attention to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It's a new year. We're going to be starting a new series. We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And I know that there are many people, many, many people, who don't want to go there. They almost pretend as though that book doesn't exist. They love the New Testament, love the Gospels, love the, you know, the books of Paul and the writings of James and John and all those things. Well, almost everything that John writes, but when you get to the book of Revelation, it's like, 
we're going to slow down and stop right there and then look back. And we, it's almost like there's a, a buffer that kind of stops us from going there. But I, wanna, I want us to go boldly there because the revelation is not the revelation of beasts. It's not the revelation of terrors or of horrible symbols and awful things, even though there are symbolic languages used there. But it's the revelation. What does it say in verse 1 there? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. And friends, if Jesus is there, it's safe for us to go there too. Amen? So we're this quarter, we're going to take a look at the book of Revelation. And let me tell you a few ground rules before we launch into this. Okay? Number one, there is absolutely no way, no way possible that we're going to cover everything that could be covered in the book of Revelation in a quarter of series. Right? And I'm sure that somebody's going to say, well, Pastor, we need to cover this more. We need to dive into this. Now, I agree, we need, all of us need to be diving into God's Word, but there's only so much we can do all together at one time. So we're going to do the best that we can. Our goal is not necessarily to analyze each tree, but to go back and look at the whole forest. Does that make sense? So I want to give the challenge that I'm going to present to myself, and hopefully you'll pick up on, as we go through this quarter's sermons, is to look at the book of Revelation as a whole and see each of its parts, how they're related together. And yes, we're going to dive into some parts, and yes, there are some parts we're going to skim past. It's not because I don't think they're important or they think they're any less. We just want to give a good overview of the book of Revelation. So do not think of this. Don't expect it to be Revelation, the 400-level class. Okay? This is Revelation 101, the basic nuts and bolts, but hopefully it will put a framework in our head so that when the opportunity, not if, but when you go home and study more into Revelation, you'll have the proper framework to place that study inside of. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're looking at the broad range of Revelation. So today we're going to look at chapters 1 through 3. And let me tell you something. Chapter 1 deserves a sermon all of its own. In fact, just the first verse of chapter 1 could be a sermon. There, you could literally take almost every verse of Revelation and have a good study just on that. And today we're going to do three chapters. So we need to start with a word of prayer. <laughs> Let's begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us this book and for giving us Jesus Christ, not just on loan, but you've given to him to us forever. Lord, thank you for the gift of Jesus. And now as we study the revelation of Jesus Christ, Lord, we ask that Jesus would truly be revealed. Help us to see him more clearly and understand his plan for our future and the end time events that are soon to come as we focus on him and him alone. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyway, I believe the Lord will bless our study, but I want to start right here in Revelation chapter 1. Now, obviously, Revelation chapter 1 is the introductory statements to the rest of the book. Okay? So in a certain sense, Revelation chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 are an introduction. But you could also extend that to verse 3. But then John extends it into the rest of the verses, and you can say all of chapter 1 is the introduction. Well, then you could go to chapters 2 and 3 and say, well, actually, those are an introduction to the rest of the book that's going. So everything builds, everything contains on its own, and it builds into the next thing, okay? So it's self-contained, but it also builds into the next thing. So let's just start with chapter 1 and verse 1, opening of the book. The revelation, again, of whom? Jesus Christ. It reveals Jesus. Let's be clear about this. And I want you to see that from the very opening sentence and all through these introductory statements, all through the chapters that we're going to read today, it keeps coming back to Jesus. The whole purpose of Revelation is to reveal Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at how it came to be. Which God gave him. So where did Jesus Christ get this message? From God the Father, right? 
gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a message to be given to his servants about things that are shortly to take place. Things that have not happened yet, but are going to happen someday in the future that are written for our admonition. That's called prophecy. Yes? Something that needs to be told that hasn't happened yet. The servants, by the way, are the prophets who relay this message. So there's a message about Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy given by God about the future. It says all of that right there in the very first opening sentence. And he sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. You'll see an interesting thing throughout the book of Revelation. Servant is almost always equated with prophet. Okay, the messenger of the Lord, the angel, the one who's going to deliver this message from God is his servant as he relays the message. So he sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, which does reveal, by the way, an interesting thing about how the Bible is given to us. Again, this is where one whole sermon could be dedicated to this, but notice that the father gives it to the son, the son gives it to the angel, the angel gives it to John, and John writes it to give to other people who are going to read it to other people. You know, it spreads it that way. At the end of this game of telephone, is it still the word of God? Absolutely. But his method of transcription is not just directly writing it with his own finger, you know, or pronouncing it out loud. The revelation of Jesus. No, no, no. He gives it to someone who gives it to someone who gives it to someone. And John is the human prophet, the earthly messenger of this message that God wants to give. Verse 2. Speaking of John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, which apparently is all the things that he saw. You'll see this phrasing repeated. By the, by the way, you see things started here in chapter 1 that are repeated all throughout the book. This phrasing of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Word of God, testimony of Jesus. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for what reason? For the time is near. Okay. So notice, again, it comes back to this. We're looking at Jesus, but something about the future that's coming and the time is near. All eyes are on Jesus as we look to the future and the time, whatever that is, is near. So he goes on, John chapter, I mean, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John, of course, writing now, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, I want to pause right there. Here, the human author, even though the message is from God, the human author is whom? John. Okay? And he's writing it to a particular group of people. It does not just say to the church or to all the saints or to who in the future might ever read this book. There were some literal places in a real place, in real time, real people who were receiving this letter. Okay? And where are they located? In Asia. Okay? So John, as we're about to read in a little bit, is stranded on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. That's why he got in trouble. That's why he's there. But while he is there, the Lord gives him this message to give to those seven churches which are in Asia. Notice they're not churches which will be in Asia, they are, at that point, when he's writing, real churches that actually are functioning at that time, some of which the Apostle Paul has already visited, and, you know, they've already got churches established. Of course, they're already established churches. They're receiving these messages from God's servant. 
And I know that seems like such a minute point to bring out, but I want to start, show you, start setting the framework now, that John is writing from a perspective of things that currently are and things that will be in the future. It starts in his time, and then it's going to go forward. Let's take a look. Again, verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from... So is John writing for, for his own sake? No. He says, I'm simply relaying a message from someone else. He tells us who it's from. From him, capital H, who is and was and is to come. That's one person. And from the seven spirits, which are before the throne. And from whom? Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So you have three entities mentioned there as this message is from. But apparently, go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Who was this, who, from whom did this message originate? God. But let me ask you a question. Is it possible for there to be one God in three persons? Absolutely, absolutely. This message is from God, but John clearly identifies what he says when he means God. He's talking the Father, who was and is and is to come, the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, in the book of Revelation, you will never see mentioned the name Holy Spirit, but will you see repeatedly mentioned the seven spirits. You know, this is a book of symbolism where numbers and colors and certain biblical names are used to describe things. Here, seven spirits of God and from Jesus Christ. You have the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, he says, all of this is God, right? All of these individuals constitute one God. And he goes on to say, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, which member of the Godhead did that? Jesus Christ, right? That's who he was just talking about. In verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which member of the Godhead is he specifically exalting here? Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that the revelation is grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ. Behold, verse 7, he is coming with clouds. Who's coming? Jesus Christ. He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. So you notice that he's writing to seven literal churches in a real place in Asia Minor there, these seven churches, but he's supposed to be giving them a message of things to come, and it culminates with the coming of Jesus Christ. So you have a chronological framework established right here in Genesis, uh, Revelation, the other end of the book, Revelation chapter 1, that begins with the time of the prophet John, goes ahead of that time, things which are to come, and culminates with the coming of Jesus Christ. This is the time frame of the book of Revelation. This is what it covers, the introduction tells us here. So let's go down to verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos. For what reason? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. This phrasing over and over. Word of God, testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and 
By the time you get to Revelation, the rest of Scripture makes it very clear. Which day is the Lord's day? Sabbath day. It's the same one from the very beginning of creation, right? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And it lists them, which when I was in a teaching in academies, I would make all of my students memorize the names of the seven churches. I hope all of you can do that now. If not, good. That's a little extracurricular study you can do this afternoon. E-S-P-T-S-P-L. E-S-P-T-S-P-L. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. Okay? The seven churches which are in Asia. And notice again in verse 11, his instruction, this is Jesus Christ instructing his servant John, his messenger. It does not say write seven books and send, send one to each church. Each church doesn't get its own book. All of these were bound together in one book, and they were supposed to be passed around from church to church to church. Does that make sense? So one messenger would take it to Ephesus, and then when they read it, they get the instruction from it. Then he'd go on to, and they go all around the around the circuit until they get to Laodicea, right? So, and I find that interesting because the letters to the seven, the messages to the seven churches are not always encouraging about the churches. <laughs> so some churches would find, hey, we're doing great. And boy, did you hear about that one? <laughs> did you hear about Sardis? Did you hear about, oh my, Laodicea? But every church got it. And, if, and, I, and I bring this out because I think it's an important point that the messages weren't all heard at the same time, but there was a sequence. Ephesus, then Pergamum, then Thy, all the way around, okay, then Pergamum, then all the way around to get to Laodicea. It lays it out in a sequence. Okay? And I, again, I want to drive this point home. There was one territory called Asia Minor with seven distinct churches, and the message was supposed to travel from this one to this one to this one in a sequence, from first to last. Is that clear? I'm not trying to dumb it down. I'm not trying to simplify it or round any corners off. I just want everyone to see the structure. And that's important because this is a book of prophecy. And it usually does things in a sequential order. At least that's what we've seen in prophecies prior to the book of Revelation. We'll bring that back in just a minute. But let's keep going now. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, don't worry, it doesn't tell us what the lampstands are yet, but we'll get there in just a few moments. Okay? I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man was a moniker that Jesus used for himself when he was there on the earth. John would have been familiar with that. He walked and talked and lived with Jesus, right? And it describes his clothing, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, and it's refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Is it already employing symbolic language? Yes. Right? This is not necessarily an individual who has a physical sword coming out of his mouth and holding stars in his hand, walking among fiery lamps. Okay? But it explains, it starts introducing us to this symbolic language 
right here in the introduction. So whenever you get to symbolic language later, you're not surprised. You're like, ah, that makes sense. They've already set the groundwork for that in the introduction. Okay? Now it goes on. Verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Who is this individual? There's only one person that can dress like that, talk like that, act like that, and say of his own testimony, I used to be dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Is this book all about Jesus Christ? Absolutely. From beginning to end. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 19. So Jesus commands him, write the things which you have seen. Okay, so his job is to write down the things that he's seen. And the things which, and notice this, very important, the things which are, and are is present tense, currently at your time. Right? The things which are, and the things which will take place when? After this. So apparently what he's about to write down has an application to the time in which he's living, things that are, but also an application for things that are still to come, a future, a prophecy. So apparently he can write something and have it real life at that real-time application, but also be a prophecy of what is to come in the future. Okay? I believe that's what we're going to see in these seven churches. These are real churches with real issues but they also represent the future to come. Watch this now. Again, he says, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And then he starts to give us the interpretation of some of the symbolism in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Again, that's the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the what? Seven churches. They are the seven churches. And notice that Jesus is seen by John walking in amongst these churches. And he has a message for these churches that he wants John to write down and give to a messenger who would relay those messages to the churches. Very simple. Which brings us to the end of chapter 1. So we go right into chapter 2. And chapter 2 and 3 is completely devoted to these seven churches. To these seven churches. In the church of Ephesus, the first church, we find a church that's full of zeal for the truth, but it has one little problem. It's lost its first love. Let's read it in chapter 2 here. Again, each church, by the way, has an introduction from Jesus himself with a different attribute about himself. For instance, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. Well, we just saw who holds the stars and who walks in the lampstands. Who is that? Jesus. By the way, the default answer in almost every question in the book of Revelation is going to be Jesus. Okay. He goes on and says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience, uh, persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. All of these are good things, faithful to the truth. 
And nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do your first works. Or else I will come to you quickly to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have. But another good thing. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What we have are these people who are testing the truths that were coming out of people's mouths, testing the apostles themselves, testing all the things, and seeing if it was true, if they were holding to the faith. And God says, that is commendable, that's great. You reject the right things, you accept the correct things. The only problem is, you've, in so doing, you've lost your first love. Okay. That seems to be their issue. Now, to the church in Ephesus, the real church in Asia Minor, that would have resonated with their personal experience. Aha, we, we do have these issues with the Nicolaitans. We have had these heresies come in, and we have held the faith. But at the same time, you're right, we've kind of lost our zeal for the lost, and we're just kind of starting to become insular. And he says, repent and come back to your old ways. So there's an application for that church at that time. But this is also a parallel to the early church. Okay? At the earliest church, they, they were... Not just the message delivered by the, fa- the early fathers. They were still alive. The apostles were still a living and, and having their ministry at this time. And people were being faithful at that time, but they were starting to lose their first love in the history of the church. But now we go to chapter uh, 2 and verse 8, the second church of Smyrna. I like Smyrna. I would not have wanted to go through what they did, but the good thing is Smyrna has absolutely no rebuke from the Lord mentioned in it whatsoever, which is kind of nice, right? Verse 8, And to the angel in the church of Smyrna write, These things say the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Now, keep that in mind. It's an interesting contrast between Smyrna, who's faithful under persecution, Versus Laodicea at the end, who apparently is facing no persecution and is lackadaisical and lazy and apathetic. This one here is poor, but rich in spirit. Laodicea thinks they're rich, but doesn't realize that they're actually poor in spirit. Right? The inference from that is that apparently a little testing, a little difficulty is actually good for spiritual growth. I think one of the most dangerous things that Satan can do for us is make everything good. Like, hmm, kind of relax, kind of get, you know, slow. But this church was under persecution. They were staying faithful. It says, verse 10, Do not fear any of the things which you're about to suffer. And indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you'll have tribulation ten days. But be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Hmm. Now that's promising. Again, no rebuke at all for the church in Smyrna that the church in persecution time, and they're being faithful throughout it. So we go to the third church, Pergamos, or Pergamum as some translate it. This church was mostly faithful, but you see the beginnings of compromise in the church of Pergamum. Watch this now. Verse 12, And to the angel in the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And of course, if you know anything about the, the area of Pergamos, this was a very, very uh, evil place, very spiritual place, and they had, uh, this would have meant very pertinent application to the people living at that time. And you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. 
So a lot of good things. Faithful even under persecution to some extent. But I have a few things against you because you have there the, who the, those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, if you were to pick up the book of Revelation and you were to read about Balaam, you would think, oh, Balaam must be a guy who's living there at that time. But if you know the rest of the scripture, Balaam isn't talking about that Balaam there. Balaam is a reference back to the Old Testament, right? You will see this employed in the book of Revelation. Revelation presumes that you've read all the Bible that comes before it. Right? So it will employ things. You know Balaam from back in the day when Balak did his thing. Anyway, you know about that. It doesn't start to explain who Balaam is. It, it assumes you already know. Same thing with Babylon. The same thing with Jezebel. The same thing with all these different Old Testament references. It assumes that you already know that so it can employ them without having to play catch up. So, he just kind of throws that out there. You're tolerating Balaam, as it was in the days of Balak with Israel. Verse 15, thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Now, if you remember back in the church of Ephesus, they kept out those Nicolaitans. They kept the doctrines pure. But now, in the time of Pergamos, they're starting to, now they're not fully embracing it. They're not all drinking in, but they're being okay with it. They're starting to tolerate it, right? It's like we're starting to see some compromise here. And the Lord's re- rebuke there, and the Lord's uh, admonition to them in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So we go on now to the next church, and I want you to notice this progression of corruption in the churches. Verse 18, go to the church of Thyatira. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has the eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. You do good things. That's good. And that's pretty much the end of the good news for this church. It's even more problems mentioned. Nevertheless, verse 20, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Again, this is a reference to Jezebel from the Old Testament. That would be code language to the people there, and they would understand, aha, that Jezebel experience from the Old Testament matches up what we're experiencing in our church. They would have understood that at that time. And he goes on to talk about the difficulties they're having. Now look at verse 24. Now I say to you, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He goes on to give these promises of overcoming if you repent of these shortfallings. Now we go to Sardis. In my Bible, it even has the heading of the dead church. <laughs> you know, I would not want to be known as, you know, the dead church. But in this group of seven, that's what Sardis was known as. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful, 
and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. But it says in verse 4, You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. If you notice now, the vast majority of the church is corrupt, but there's a few who are still faithful. You see this progression of corruption. During the time of persecution, so, I mean, we can just walk through it. In Ephesus, everything was doctrinally sound. The only problem is they were too zealous for that, and they were losing their love for the lost, but pretty much that was it. Okay? Then you go into the time of persecution, and they rally together, and they're faithful, and he just says, hold on, you can make it. No rebuke whatsoever. Then, as we move forward into the churches, you start to see a little bit of compromise, then about a 50-50 mix, and by the time now you get to Sardis, the whole thing is basically dead. There's just a few who are still dwelling. So you see a growing compromise throughout the history of the church. And again, each of these churches would have a personal application in their own situation, but as a history, you're starting to see the outline of the history of the Christian church develop from the apostolic era all the way to the end of time, which is the chronological framework the introduction has already established, starting at the time of John and going to the time of Jesus Christ's return. So again, we go on here at Sardis. You have a few, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now let's skip down to verse 7. You think, oh, things can't get any worse, and then you go to chapter 3 and verse 7, and you find this marvelous breath of fresh air called the Church of Philadelphia. <sighs> Philadelphia means what? Brotherly love, right? And this church was doing things well. In fact, this church was on fire for missions. They were really, in fact, in fact, you go from a church that's almost completely dead to all of a sudden there seems to be this rapid increase in a huge interest in spreading the gospel here in the church of Philadelphia. Later on, we're going to find out why that is. Okay? But just want to lay the framework. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, and who opens... And no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your work. See, I have set, you before, set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And it goes on. It, goes, it talks about, we'll just keep reading it. This is great. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to preserve, to persevere, and I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Notice they're living in a time just before there's a time of trial that will come upon the whole world. Behold, now he says, I am coming quickly. To the church of Philadelphia, it's getting closer and closer. Now they're the second to last church. And he says, there's a time of trial coming, but behold, I come quickly. They're living closer and closer to the end of this time, this era of earth's history, and they're looking closer and closer to the coming of Jesus. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. And the church of Philadelphia is unique in all of these seven churches because it's the only church I'm sorry, there's two churches, Sardis and Philadelphia, who received no rebuke from the Lord. No rebuke whatsoever. 
Both were on fire to do what the Lord had said. One was under a time of persecution. The other was looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And you think, oh, this is great. This is how it's going to culminate. And surely the last church, the one that lives at the very time of Christ's coming, will be the most on fire, the most zealous for missions, the most ready to go. And right at the very end, you get... It's a very technical theological term. But it's the church of Laodicea. Almost worse than dead. It's just called lukewarm. It's the church of... eh. You know, you're expecting this big, Jesus is coming soon, here it goes, a big burst of missions, and when that last church is there, they're like, eh, what's going on? Verse 14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. And every other time that phrase has been used, is a good thing. I know that you're doing this and you're doing that, and he says, and I know your works, that you are neither cold nor nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. You know, you can do something with cold water. You can do something with hot water. Lukewarm? Yeah. Right? That's exactly what he says in verse 16. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Mm. Because you say, and notice the contrast now, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Apparently they're fine. We're good. We're right here. We're happy in our earthly home. When the Lord is coming to take them away, they're like, no, 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 we're good. Behold. Because, I'm sorry, you say, I am rich, become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And I I I would submit to you that their big problem was not being miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Their big problem was not realizing that they were miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And they were self-deceived to think that everything was okay. We're rich, we're increased of goods, we're fine. Ooh. So he counsels them, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyesap so that you may see. I don't know which is worse, being blind or being blind and thinking you can see. Right? That's dangerous. And notice why he's speaking this way to them. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, being a father, I now think about this text more than I used to. I guess I used to think about it being a son, <laughs> Being a father, you know, it's tempting to be what the world considers loving. Just let some stuff go. Just, just everything's fine. But Christ says, no, 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 I don't want you to be blind and think you can see. I want to show you your problem so I can fix it. Right? He says, behold, those whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. Discipline is not an unloving thing. Jesus Christ does it because he loves, he says. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. 
And the same promise, miraculous enough, the same promise is given to this unfaithful church as was given to every other one. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's an interesting, by the way, introduction to next week's message where Jesus Christ says, I'll allow you to come sit on my throne as I sat on my father's throne. Well, when did that happen? Well, it's going to be talked about in Revelation 4 and 5. You'll see that most of the chapters of Revelation end with an introductory statement to the next thing that's coming in the book. And here Jesus invites, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The same way I came here, I want to bring you here too. But you need to repent. You need to repent. And of course, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the church spirit says to the churches. And thus we come to the end of the first three chapters of Revelation. Again, there was much more that we could have dived into, but I wanted to lay this framework and show you something interesting. And not too long ago, we studied from the book of Daniel. And if you recall, the book of Daniel, we've asserted the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation are parallels that they work together. And they're both prophecy books dealing with the second coming of Jesus. And both of them, I want you to show you something, are written in a very similar, almost identical fashion. For example, again, in Daniel chapter 2, the first prophetic chapter in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream, correct? And it's a dream of what? An image, a statue, a man, right? And And the image is there. It's one image from head to toe, one solid thing, but it's divvied up into different body sections, right? Head, chest and arms, belly, thighs, all the way down to the toes, right? And at the end... A rock comes and smashes it, and that rock represents the second coming of Jesus when he'll establish his kingdom. Notice Daniel's dream had one solid thing that had different sections divided up and is an outline, it's a timeline of earth's history from the time of Daniel until the second coming of Jesus. Correct? Okay. Daniel says it himself. When talking about the head of gold, he told Nebuchadnezzar, he said, you are that head of gold. This prophecy starts right here, right now, in the time in which we're speaking, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. But after you, another kingdom. And after that, another kingdom will come. And he goes through a sequence of events. All the kingdoms didn't rise at the same time, but this one, then this one, then this one, then this one, all the way, sequentially, chronologically, until the second coming of Jesus. You see the same thing in the book of Revelation. Asia, this Asia Minor, was one territory, but it was divided into seven different churches. And the letters didn't go out to each one, but they went from this one to this one to this one to this one. And you see, as you walk through these letters, you see a trajectory of history from the time of John, the things which are, through the times that must take place, culminating with the second coming of Jesus. In the same way that Daniel chapter 2 becomes the skeletal structure of the rest of the prophecies of Daniel, because if you notice, Daniel chapter 2 gets repeated over and over. Daniel chapter 7 is basically a reinterpretation of Daniel chapter 2. It's just using different language to say the same thing. Okay? Same sequence. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. I don't know how many times I've said those names in a row. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But it starts with that same structure, and it gives more detail and more detail as it goes along. You're going to find the same thing happens in the book of Revelation. Same way that Daniel has 2, then 7, then 8, 19, 11, 12. Here you're going to have the seven churches. And then it's going to go back and cover the same area with the seven seals, then the seven 
trumpets, all of which culminate at their seventh with the coming of Jesus. Okay? You have the same prophetic, oh boy, this is going to be different, same prophetic interpretive methodology. The way that you understand prophecy in the book of Daniel is the same thing you do in Revelation. It gives you the large, big sweep of history, gives you the framework, the context, and then it repeats and enlarges on particular areas of concern that God wants to highlight. Does that make sense? Praise the Lord. The burden of this first message was to show you a few key things. Number one, that Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. I hope we've made that patently clear. Jesus is the the one giving the message all the way through these seven churches. Then we get into four and five. Surprise, surprise, that's all about Jesus, right? The whole thing is about Jesus. It's a message from Jesus about Jesus leading up to the coming of Jesus. Okay? It begins in the time of John. It sequentially goes chronologically through history, and it culminates with this coming of Jesus. Okay? And this becomes the framework, the, the span of history that the book of Revelation covers. From the time of the last prophet of the Bible, John, until the second coming of Jesus and beyond. We're even going to see that in this book. But it's going to not just repeat the history though it does, but it starts adding more detail towards the end of history in the time in which we're living. The book was written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Revelation is not a thing to be afraid of. It was given to us as a gift by Jesus Christ himself to reveal to us Jesus Christ for those who are, especially those of us who are living in the days when we're going to see Jesus face to face. I'm absolutely convicted in my very heart that during my lifetime, I will see Jesus with my own two eyes. It is incumbent upon us, wherever Jesus is in his word, to follow him there. Amen? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.